Hey folks, this is Jeff Benjamin along with Bruce Kelly for The Investment News Podcast. Got a couple of guests coming at you this week. First, we have Ben Edwards, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Boyd School of Law. He's going to talk to us about some uh, ne'er-do-wells in the securities industry. And we're going to follow up with Amy Dominey, an ESG investing icon. Uh, We'll get into a lot of that with her. But first of all, hello, Ben. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. Glad to be here. All right. And uh, I know Bruce wrote, recently quoted you in uh, one of his columns. I'm, I'm going to kick it over to Bruce for the, for the first question to sort of set the stage. Of course. Hey, Ben, how are you today? I'm well. I'm well. Yeah, thanks for coming on by. I love reading your, you know, love talking to you. We've been talking, I don't know, how many, a few years now we've been in contact? It's been a, it's been a while, probably since I was a professor at Michigan State. Oh, okay. That long, huh? Man. And then you're, you're great on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, Ben? It's uh, at Ben P. Edwards. At Ben P. Edwards. You're terrific on Twitter. And you're up on the, all the latest you know, developments from you know, DOL fiduciary to regulatory issues to everything. So that's why I wanted to call you for my column. And that's why I wanted you to be a guest on the show today on the podcast. I wrote a column recently, and it was what I call in my own, you know, jargon, the one bad broker rule and why the oh, yeah. one bad broker rule matters. Some people in the industry didn't like it. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, as you could imagine, I got a couple of emails saying you're wrong. What do you know? You're an idiot. Oh, yeah. I get, I get and, those but emails. <laughs> I, but one bad broker can really screw up a firm. Oh, yeah. Even today. And I mean, just this week, we had the baddest broker of all time pass away, Bernie Madoff, I believe at the age of 82, died in prison. And no one wants to die in prison, of course. Yeah. It's we we took be a, a moment terrible... of silence for him in my business organizations class uh, yesterday. One of the, one of the all-time great fraudsters. It's you no had a moment of silence. We did. We did. A moment of, a moment of silence. <laughs> Contemplate his shame. So what spurred me, though, this was a couple of weeks ago this happened, and what spurred me to write the column was the Archegos affair, mm-hmm. big hedge fund, $10 billion hedge fund, something like that, which was run by a guy who used to be, was a, was a protege of the Tiger hedge funds, Bill Huang, his name is, and he got into a lot of trouble. He lost billions of dollars by making big bets on large securities, right? And that's hedge, and then leveraging up and borrowing money to make those Bets. That's why all the big banks were so scared, right, oh, yeah. about what their projected losses could be. And at the same time, FINRA, which is the securities regulator, primary securities regulator, came out and had three what I thought were pretty unusual enforcement actions against what we call independent broker dealers, where uh, the reps are not employees, but independent contractors, Cambridge and Securities America and J.W. Cole, and they all involve one bad broker selling a lot of one fund that just happened to blow up. It was, a, it was an alt fund called the LJM Preservation and Growth Fund, which blew up in February 2018. And so I called you up and asked you about risk. And you had the, I thought you had a really wonderful description of risk that could apply to a hedge fund like Archegos or f- apply to just a broker who's selling. And I think at like Cambridge... One broker sold more than 80% of the fund, the LJM fund, which was 18 million in total, but one guy sold like 15 or $16 million out of that 
that's a red flag to me, right? When one person is selling so much of one security or in the Archegos case, taking such a big bet on one security. How do you assess the risk? What do you tell your students about the risk? And how do you talk to brokerage people about the risk here presented by these scenarios? So what what sort of concept uh, I draw on is is something that we talk about uh, as legal academics. There's this really influential theory you called agency cost theory. Right. And it, it is it is something that is really flexible. Enormous number of law review articles and careers have been built on thinking about it. It applies with public companies, with broker dealers, with people picking strawberries in a field. It's an enormously useful conceptual framework for thinking about this stuff. And it's called what again? Agency cost theory. Okay. Agency cost theory. Okay. Okay. So so at the you know, at the, the very beginning, you can you can start with an, a, a simple assumption. Everybody wants to make money. And yes. Yeah, you know, if you just you, you, you just assume you know everybody wants to make some money. Yes. And now, if if we want to make some money, and I need to hire you to do something for me, you want to make money, I want to make money, and if our interests are really well aligned, we we should both make money. I mean, hopefully things go well. But there's there's this reality that anytime you're working with other people, you're hiring other people that make their own decisions, they're sometimes going to have an interest in doing things that aren't necessarily in your best interest, but benefit them more than they benefit you. So we could see this with even like real estate brokers. You know, imagine you're working with a realtor and they tell you, uh, you get an offer in, uh, they tell you, you should go ahead and take the offer, even though you might get a better one in another week or two weeks, or you probably would do better if you held out more. The reality is if you hold out more, it's going to cost the broker uh, or the, re- the realtor uh, a lot more effort to show the house more, to keep bacon bread, to make it smell nice. Uh, and they're only getting maybe 3% off the transaction. So the amount of work they're going to have to do to drive the price up by another 10K is just not worth it to them. So in those sorts of instances, you know, they're going to give you advice. Just go ahead and take the offer. You don't know whether you'll ever get another offer. They're going to accentuate the risks. And what we see, uh, and the, the research has shown that when realtors sell their own houses, they tend to keep it on the market a few weeks longer than when they're selling other people's houses. That's, you know, that's you know, one way of, of seeing an agency cost problem. So, so there's a way to break it down into elements that you can, you can think of agency costs as, as really having three different factors. We, one piece of it is, is monitoring. The other is bonding and opportunism. So, so on the monitoring leg, this is you know, the, the effort you have to put in as someone who's hiring an agent or hiring somebody to do something for you to keep an eye on their behavior. So if, you know, if you're a, an independent brokerage firm and you are, are hiring or, or you're working with brokers all across the country, they're often in their own offices where they're the only person there. Or maybe there's another, only two or three other people there. You know, you've got to ha- somehow figure out how you're going to supervise what they're doing and how you're going to be able to keep an eye on, on what's going on there. And so everything and, you and do- And I think if you'll excuse me, your, one yeah. of your points that you were saying to me is that these I- IBDs, the so-called IBDs, they can at times cut costs when it comes oh, yeah. to compliance and oversight. Oh, right? yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, 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 so that's almost a baked in risk that they have right. as well. Oh, yeah. Right. It's, it's, they're, they're, they're monitoring, you know, they've got to monitor, but it's expensive and it takes effort. It takes work. And so there's a, it's a business call about, you know, how much supervision do you want to have in place? So you can think about these as, you know, sort of dials, uh, you know, as you dial up, you're monitoring, it costs more to do that. And you may decrease the risk that the broker is going to behave opportunistically. Uh, and that's, a, that's an opportunism is the, the major risk here, that they're going to do things that they see as, you know, in their personal interest or their short-term interest, 
that aren't necessarily in the long-term interest of the firm that's employing them. So imagine you've got a guy who's in you know, his own office, and everybody who comes in is getting the same product. It pays a really big commission, so they like selling it. Uh, they sell the same thing to everybody. And many of those sales are just not going to be suitable. And so if the, if the firm isn't keeping an eye on it, that kind of opportunism, not learning other products, not you know, being really good at understanding you know, how to match a client uh, with the right product for their needs, that can blow up on the, on the brokerage firm. You know, so they may want to have some system in place that's good enough to catch that. What if I if I might interrupt again? One of my favorite uh, anecdotes uh, around this is uh, a kind of a, a broker dealer that's out of business. That one of the more notorious broker dealers of the aughts, shall we say? I won't name it here, but they were getting hassled by Finra or the SEC, I forget which, to improve their compliance and oversight of their brokers. And they were fast building brokerage firm and hiring a bunch of bunch of people. So what they did was to satisfy the regulators. They bought or rented, you know, the most whiz bang compliance systems that were on the marketplace, and then they installed them into the the home office, right, and had them for use. And then the regulators came by and said, "Okay, you've done this. That's good. We'll check that off." And then they never bothered to use them. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's apocryphal or not, but it's but it seems very fitting for for some firms. Uh, Jeff, do you have any questions over there for for Ben? I know you're you're chomping at the bit probably to get to this. Yes, I do have a couple of questions. Well, I really, have questions about the LJM Preservation and Growth Fund in the context of all of this. I know you can say in hindsight because things blew up that compliance, you know, was asleep at the wheel, but there's probably a lot of advisors that they latch onto a specific fund and say, I'm going to put all my clients in this because I believe in this. I mean, the LJM fund, as I can see it, it, it had three different share classes. So there were, it, it's likely that whoever was buying a lot of it wasn't getting commissions. They could have been getting commissions, but they might have been, you know, different types of, of share classes. So, and if you've got advisors that are, you know, loading up in funds that they that don't blow up. I mean, is that not a problem or or what? Because it's not like these funds are necessarily disproportionately weighted in a client's portfolio, as far as we know. They're just disproportionately weighted in terms of the the funds that an advisor or broker is buying for for his clients overall. So I'm kind of wondering how compliance could have helped this situation. Oh, yeah, of course. So, so ideally, what you'd want to have is, is some sort of supervision or monitoring or oversight system, which will alert you to red flags. So sometimes so you know, some, if, a, if a broker is only selling one product or, or one thing, that, that to me seems like a red flag. And you know, it, it could be that they're just recommending the same thing to everybody, regardless of what their needs are. So you would want to have your compliance folks go take a look at it. And if they take a good look at it and all the transactions are fine, there's not a problem, then this is not something where there's going to be an enormous amount of risk to them potentially. Uh, but there is also, you know, some, with product failures, there's a risk to the firm if the firm is over-concentrated and selling only one product. So they might want to push the broker, you know, on that basis. So, so, there's, so one way to think about this is you want to do something if there's smoke. But if there's smoke, it doesn't necessarily mean that the fire is a problem. 
And mm-hmm. so, so let me tell you a story. My wife got me a Commodore Joe smoker for my birthday. And I was pretty excited. I'm living out here in Vegas. I don't get as much good pulled pork as I did when I lived in South Carolina. And <laughs> so I, I, I get out there and I fire this thing up for the first time. Uh, I got the coals going and I really don't know what I'm doing, but I got this bag of wood chips and I dumped the whole bag of wood chips onto the coals. And oh man, oh man, the smoke just starts roaring up. This is an enormous cloud of smoke forming. Uh, It's it's rolling over the fence into my neighbor's backyard. You know, I I can't see more than about five feet in front of me. I got to sort of duck down so I can breathe. It's just, it's, it's a crazy amount of smoke. So this is happening. And we have a neighborhood group chat, which is, you know, handy. If somebody's dog gets out, suddenly it starts buzzing. Is the house on fire? Should we call the, you know, the fire department? So I was able to let the neighborhood know that I, I goofed up and I put too many wood chips on the smoker uh, and things would go back to normal in about 10 minutes. And they did. <laughs> But, you know, but this was smoke uh, and you want to investigate. My neighbor got some pulled pork later. Uh, It was I was I was grateful to the man for for reaching out and and for raising the alarm. But, you know, in that in that instance, you know, it was, you know, just an ordinary, you know, just, you know, too many too many wood chips uh, on the smoker. Yeah, well, and I understand what you're saying and, and your analogy, and I'm, I am also wondering if that smoker didn't come with some directions that oh, it did. maybe it did. you could have read. But anyway, <laughs> my my point is, is that we're looking at this in hindsight and seeing that some right. brokers had a, I don't even know if I can say it's an over-concentration because they might have had, they might have been mad, managing otherwise perfectly diversified portfolios. They just were in love with this particular fund. But it only looks egregious in hindsight because I'm wondering if there's probably a lot of brokers out there, a lot of advisors. I know a lot of advisors. And, I, you know, if, if these guys have other things going on, if they find one fund that they're happy with that, that works for, for most of their clients, they're like, why not put it with all my clients? Why do I have to find something special for all my clients that does the same thing? You know what I mean? I mean, this fund sounded like preservation and growth. That, that sounds pretty pretty safe and generic. I don't know what, do you know what happened to that fund? I know, Bruce, I mean, in your writing or Well, I, I think it had a, uh, there was a, it was a long short fund. So there was a big spike in market volatility on a big trading day back in February, 2018. The market went down 4%, I think in uh-huh. one day. And that because how the fur, how the, how the fund was structured, it just kind of, it blew up, you know, it dropped 80% in a, in a month or in a week or something. I think what the firms also gotten problems for with FINRA were not doing the due diligence. I, I don't think the firms understood the fund either. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, that's, that's as well sounds... as having the over constant. It seems to me if you have one broker selling, you know, here, oh, we have this brand new mutual fund. It's an alternative vehicle. And one person is accounting for 80% of the sales of it. Yeah. He might think that that's. I'm going to put it across my clients. You know, I have 100 clients. So I'll put it across those 100 clients or 200 clients. It still seems to me a rather large position. But the firms with what FINRA usually takes the, the, the brokers to task for is not understanding the fund. Oh, yeah. And I think it says in the FINRA action against the firms and kind of boilerplate language, all three firms involved here. The broker-dealer permitted the sale of LJM on its platform without conducting responsible or reasonable due diligence and without a sufficient understanding of its risks and features. 
So that's yeah. how a product gets mischaracterized and missold. I think, yeah, too. yeah. Well, clearly this was something that was misunderstood. Uh, even sounds like by the portfolio manager because losing eighty percent is not preservation, um, and it's <laughs> no. it, it, and it's certainly not growth. But um, yeah. you know, the long short thing was it obviously was uh, it, maybe it didn't obviously didn't protect the short side. So yeah, there's that's to me where I see more of a breakdown than somebody falling in love with it. And and that well, is it's a easy good point. to it's me it's easy at the brokerage level to misunderstand a product like it's easy for Ben to throw too many wood chips on the on the damn barbecue. You think this is great, you think it's great. Uh it's easy for Bill Wang to buy a bunch of Viacom, you know, CBS. Oh, they're launching their new platform, right? That was the story with Arcagos. They're launching their new streaming platform. Viacom is going to become a streaming giant. Let's start Let's buy more of this stock as, as it continues to climb. Yeah. So, so the, the thing I think is really interesting here is that the names that funds have are not necessarily good for helping you always understand the true risk profile of the product. <laughs> um, so, I mean, everybody likes preservation and growth. Right. I mean, right. like, like, what, what about if I call my fund, you know, you know, Ben's big old fund of preserving capital and getting rich, you know, it is. There's always a risk reward trade off. Or the long, you, short, high risk, you better watch out fund yeah. or something. Or, yeah. so, or the ice cream and cake fund. I mean, I would buy that yeah. every day. Yeah. The, you know, the <laughs> I skinny, love it. I the skinny ice cream and cake fund. So Bernie Madoff had a fund, it was one of, one of the feeder funds going into him, was, uh, was named the Broad Market Fund. And you know, the idea was you'd be broadly invested across the market. Yeah. And you know, he just stole the money. So, so well, the, he was a master at manipulating people oh, yeah. through marketing and oh, yeah. the kind of the mystery of Wall Street, right? Yeah. So there are there there are funds that are are structured or you know to be bets against volatility, bets on volatility. I had I had somebody reach out to me to ask for help where you know he had he had invested in one of these products where it was it, it paid well and performed well in a in a low volatility market, and you know he had he'd done pretty well. Uh, in it. And so he analyzed it over a one year period and he saw it was never losing money. So he put all his money in it and then he borrowed money and he put even more money in it. And I bet you can guess what happened. <laughs> Suddenly, volatility shows up and the whole thing turns around on him uh, and he's lost everything. And I have to tell him nobody at the brokerage firm told you to do this. Nobody at the brokerage firm recommended this to you. Like if a, if a broker had recommended, that he put all his assets in this and then borrow more on margin and, and leave her up to do this? Absolutely, go after the guy. But you can't go after the brokerage firm for allowing you for the low, low price of, I think, $4 to do what you want. You know, this is, you know, this is on you. So you know, with funds like this, you know, they may be right for some people in some circumstances, but it's, you really got to understand the product. If you think it's right for everybody in every circumstance, you probably don't understand the product. Yeah. So from the brokerage perspective, if I'm running a broker dealer or if I'm a compliance person in a broker dealer, what are the lessons that we need to learn here from either Bill Huang or or LJM preservation and growth or whatever? You want to monitor sources of risk. And so that's going to be, you know, if you see an unusual concentration or your repeated risky pattern. Uh, then you want to try to identify it and address it. So, so here, you know, if you have one broker putting so many 
investors into a single product, that's a concentration you want to take a close look at. You know, and same, I mean, when, when it comes to the, the hedge fund, I mean, you, you just want to monitor, you know, overall leverage levels. Because, you know, there, there are lots of people who come to Vegas and they put everything on black and they do well. And then they, you know, they've had a lot of drinks and they say they, they, they let it ride for another round and they win again. And it seems like that's what the hedge fund was doing. But eventually the house is going to win. Hey, uh, uh, Ben, I got one more thing for you. It's not on the it's not part of Bruce's story, but uh, I got to believe being a professor in this area and uh, you're a lawyer, too, right? I am. OK, well, there you go. You got two strikes against you. So um, <laughs> with that, um, you, you got to know you, you've heard about this uh, issue where Schwab accidentally deposited one point two million into that former client's <laughs> account. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I got to. I got to know your your take on that one. I mean, well, a couple of things. For those of you who aren't familiar in our audience, they Schwab accidentally deposited 1.2 million into a a person's account. I think it was a former client by accident. And the former client went and uh, bought a house and a car and then refused to give the money back and uh, ultimately got arrested. I don't know what good that does, but what, what is your take on that? I mean, who's, who's going to get the boot for that job? Well, you know, the guy, the guy at Schwab, you got to got to put it in perspective. In February, Citigroup transferred $500 million to Revlon creditors. <laughs> um, oh, my and, goodness. And, you know, the, 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 I guess the real difference here in my mind is, you know, if you just get a million dollars from Schwab and you spend it already, you can't hire lawyers like me to help you out. On the other hand, if you get $500 million from Citigroup, you can go to court. Uh, and you can really make a case. And uh-huh. you know, in the Citigroup instance, the judge said they they weren't Citigroup wasn't going to be able to get it back when they wired it by mistake. Wow. I, think, I think there's some there's, there's some other real differences on the ground that you know the, the the people that it wired the money to had a real claim to it. Like they you know they were they were lenders. Uh, you know Citigroup wasn't planning on paying them off, but once you know they they did have an entitlement to that amount of money eventually right. from Citigroup. Uh, so so here the the firm uh, you have to. You have to sort of like wonder like how how'd you goof up like that? But the the other the other side of this, this you know, life isn't monopoly. You know, bank errors in your favor doesn't mean you're really entitled to the money. Yeah, yeah. I just thought that was uh, comically <laughs> bizarre, and uh, I I always whenever I see something that's a little outside the realm, I always try and put myself in that position. I'm like, I would if I saw a million extra dollars in some account of mine, I would immediately know that there was a mistake. And oh, yeah. uh, and never expect to be entitled to that money, but uh, it's just uh, the in- yeah. I'd go into a cold sweat immediately. <laughs> and I get the heebie-jeebies, man, and I'd be running around calling everybody I could under creation, you know, to try to find out who who this money belongs to. Man. Yeah, I would definitely not touch it until panic. somebody contacted me because yeah. you got to figure somebody's eventually going to contact you, right? And hopefully they're friendly people. <laughs> they're, you know, yeah, they're a million dollars. Knuckles. Is, they're going to want that guy's name Knuckles and Rocco, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, I imagine it, Schwab probably came and said, "Hey, that's our bad. You know, we got a free hat for you here, and you know, here's a here's a nice T-shirt. Here's a bag, probably threw a lot of cool you know. tchotchke at him. You know, yeah, and say, hey, a- we're really sorry, ma'am, but uh, we're going to need that money back. Right? Yeah. I mean. I mean, think about the tax situation. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, it, it's, uh, I just, I don't understand why she, you know, it, that, that sort of error. I mean, maybe you'd have a, you know, a, 
uh, an argument for keeping any interest you earned on it while you held it. But, oh yeah, but, there you uh, go. You, you know, could make but, some uh, decent interest if you sat on it. Well, not in this yeah. market. You couldn't. What am I right, thinking? Yeah, but yeah. You know, you know, seven you, bucks. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you, you, you could probably tie it up a little bit uh, and delay <laughs> while you're trying to figure out what really happened. Now you say you're the ones who gave me this million dollars, but how do I know that? Yeah. So I'm just going to sit on it. <laughs> Meanwhile, so, you're you're levering it up on your Robinhood app, buying GameStop <laughs> like crazy. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think I think you're probably okay as long as you stay yeah. FDIC insured. But when you when you go outside that, yeah, okay. you're 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 I, I can't endorse that risk. So all right, good good ben, thoughts, Ben. Anything else? Uh, not nothing for me. Uh, so thank you guys. Okay, great. Thanks for dropping by, man. Really appreciate it. Happy to do it. Investment news is bringing the burgeoning world of sustainable investing to advisors and investors with our upcoming podcast, Impact Adventures. I'm Steve Lamb. And I'm Liz Skinner. We'll tell powerful stories of impact each week and explore different issues and opportunities in the environmental, social, and governance investment space. The podcast will give advisors the tools and confidence to start deep and meaningful conversations with their clients. And investors will learn how they can generate returns while maximizing impact. Our first season, launching April 23rd, will be a deep dive exploration of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. Over the course of 18 episodes, we'll describe how individual social enterprises are working within each SDG to create change. Profit? Yes. Purpose? Absolutely. Adventure? Let's go. All right, that was good stuff from Ben Edwards. Associate Professor of Law at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Uh, now we have Amy Dominey joining us. Amy is the chair of Dominey Impact Investments and a ESG investing icon. She's been in this space for a while. She's now, I think, technically re- uh, retired, but my sense is that she still does a lot of work on this. I know, Amy, I, I talked to you recently, you've authored or co-authored six books on this topic of ESG and sustainable investing. Uh, a lot of people in the industry that have been around and covering it for a while, like myself, kind of think of you as uh, one of the earliest adopters and pioneers in the space. Welcome to the program, Amy. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I uh, wanted to talk to you a little bit about what we're seeing recently in this space. And, and I know you've been involved in this space for a long time. And your story, how you originally got into it, I would like you to tell that yourself. It was, it's fascinating. But first, I want to ask you, what, what do you make of the, the popularity over the past year or year and a half? It's something like I've never seen before. Absolutely. It's terrifically exciting. I do think that there are several things that came together over the last year and propelled it mainstream. Obviously, uh, there's an old saying, before I became an overnight success, I put in 30 hard years. And that's <laughs> pretty much the case here. For about 30 years, a lot of the ground has been set. There have been myriad academic studies as to the total portfolio impact of this kind of work that are allowing portfolio managers to feel comfort that they're actually adding value when they look at environmental and social criteria. There have been legal changes that have gone on, not so much in the U.S., but around the world, sometimes allowing and more often mandating 
integration of these kinds of criteria into the investment process. There have been multinational uh, organizations, the United Nations has sponsored several of them, that are enabling parts of it, making it possible for somebody in South Africa to have a vocabulary that's the same as an investor in England would have. Mm -hmm. And then let's not forget the activism on the ground. We've had a big push toward divestment of oil and gas companies. And that divestment initiative has very clearly called itself a moral imperative and has very clearly tied itself to climate change, which was very in our faces this past year. So as we started seeing, well, you know, instead of two hurricanes, we'll have 11 this year or 30 this year. We also started thinking about the kind of impact that would have on our investment portfolio, maybe wanting to do something about it. So many of these things have come together. I just said one last is that the younger generations, younger than myself, generations who have come along really just feel very strongly about the company they work for, the company they buy products from, and they feel a very strong desire to have their investments at least align with their value system, if not actually make a difference in the world, which of course we who are practitioners in this field think we are doing, making a difference in the world. Let me ask you, Amy, if you can share the story of how you first discovered this opportunity or this space. And when you were a your broker and you said that some of your clients wanted to didn't want to invest in yes, certain companies. Yes. Well, yeah, it takes you so far back. But in those days, stockbrokers sold stocks. And you, every morning, had this loudspeaker in the corner, the squawk box. And it would come on and it would say, good morning. Today, we're going to have a contract coming out of the Navy. And we anticipate that these companies will receive funding for these initiatives. And if you like those companies, you called up your clients and said, we're expecting good news for Raytheon today or something. Mm -hmm. And I would get pushback from clients and said, you know, not that long after the Vietnam War. And they say, I, I had a brother who died there. I'm not interested in the war machine. Or mm -hmm. I had a father who died of lung cancer. We're not going to have any lung cancer producers in the portfolio. And, and that so Amy, is this, excuse me, is this in the 1970s, early 80s, you know, Jimmy Carter era, Ronald Reagan era? When was this exactly? <laughs> Between 1975 and 1980. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I started as a stockbroker in 1975. Okay. And by well, 1980. Being a woman, right, at an investment house back then, I would Oh, imagine. gosh, yes. But that's but a whole you, different, I don't want to. I'm sorry. I don't yeah. want to get you bogged down in that, too. No, Yeah, but you're right. It was. You always have to, as a financial professional, go through a process to know your client. And I started using that process to raise the questions with people I was getting to know and say, you know, are there areas you're uncomfortable investing in, like military or tobacco or things? And people would all come up with something. And I thought, holy cow. Like, you know, this mm -hmm. should be this should be routine. Everybody should be asking this question. I've got to learn more about this. It's hard enough to get a client. You don't want to make them mad. 
And <laughs> as I started trying to learn them, of course, pre-computer, pre-internet, you sent a snail mail to the local college with key phrases, and they sent you back headlines of things, and and none of them worked. There were stories on mother-child bonding, mm-hmm. you know, and it was really. But but I did decide that this was an important thing, and I would write a book about it, and I would learn how to more about the subject by teaching about it, and signed mm-hmm. up to to teach a class at Cambridge Center for Adult Ed. And I, meanwhile, designed a book outline based on ABCs of Investing, which was a class I already was teaching. And the catalog came out, and I got a call from a publisher. Would you like to write a book? And I said, yeah, I've got a book outline. I can send it to you right now. And and so then the whole effort took off. Now, teaching that class and Pursuing my research in the area, I did discover that quite a lot was already going on. Faith-based organizations quite frequently didn't invest in alcohol, tobacco, gambling. Quakers didn't invest in in weapons. The so-called sin stocks, right? That's what those were called back then. Sin stocks. Yeah. Uh, There had been a little initiative in the first Earth Day back, you know, 1971, I guess maybe two, when the Four environmental mutual funds were started, and they all had just one standard, no nuclear. So that had kind of set a path. And there was a big discussion going on, uh, particularly in the Episcopal Church, which is part of the Anglican Communion, which is the primary church in South Africa. And there was a big discussion going on about the role of American corporations with operations in South Africa. So gradually, these threads kind of came together into all of us were talking about the right use of money. And we started trying to think about if, and South Africa was a very interesting experiment because there you were saying, A, it's just wrong to make money from this system of apartheid, which we in America recognize as slavery, and B, Money, by investing, you're complicit. You're creating it. You're enabling it. Mm -hmm. So that was a decision that was pretty difficult for institutions to embrace. And my book, Ethical Investing, came out in 1984. 1986 was the Christian year. It's Bruce again. I was a college student then, and I remember the apartheid protests, but there were some big American corporations, right, that had, you know, some really blue chip companies that were doing business in South Africa that drew a lot of attention and a lot of university endowments were among the first That's to exactly right. question this, right? I, was it IBM and GM and some others? General Motors was the largest employer in South Africa at the time. And that's why they were so much the target. They were the first company to receive a a resolution from shareholders. And they had just been attacked for the lack of diversity in top management. And they just put an African-American preacher from Philadelphia on the board, the Reverend Leon Sullivan. And he, at that general meeting, when they were asked to leave South Africa, he stood up and he argued that General Motors could make South Africa a better country. And he was going to document this. And he and he created this code of conduct, which became known as the Sullivan 
principal. And, and by the time I was pretty active in the, in the late 1970s, the Sullivan principals, by acting by asking questions like how many blacks supervise how many whites, had proven that American corporations were not making things better in South Africa, which gave the whole movement all the momentum so that by 1986, we had the crescendo of divestment. I had written the book in 1984, every, as you say, every university wanted to talk about whether or not to divest. And I had written the book. So I was the de facto advocate (laughs) of divesting and found myself very quickly up against conventional thinking in Wall Street, which basically had two uh, arguments. Uh, One was, we are fiduciaries. We need to make as much money as we can for the endowment. And we put on blinders to do that. Do not distract us. The other was, well, everything that limits your investment universe is obviously going to limit your return. So these two arguments were deeply embedded truths out there that had to be chipped away at and chipped away and chipped away at. But by 1994, South Africa got the vote. So that was, you know, roughly 13 years from the filing, excuse me, 23 years from the filing of the first shareholder resolution to the vote. But this in the 80s and the 90s, this wasn't called ESG, though, right? No, no. What this was it labeled? Was, or what was it called back then? Uh, well, I called it ethical investing, but I quickly okay. had to adopt the language of, of the public, which evolved into socially responsible investing. And socially responsible investing was uh, an attempt to identify companies that were in the, say, better half, is an attempt still today to uh, you know identify better companies, not perfect companies. To invest with those, and and that is the sort of core to today's what more commonly today is called environmental, social, and governance. Uh, not government, but how you govern the company, investing, and ESG. Well, that's the that gets to the nomenclature issue that you and I have talked about in the past. Is uh, the industry the the I want to I don't want to call it the industry, but the space overall has continued to has evolved so rapidly with the naming that it's I think it it makes it more confusing for people that are trying to figure it out. You know, there's sustainable, there's right. socially responsible, there's ethical, there's ESG. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Is that something that they're gonna the industry's gonna get a hold of? ESG seems to be kind of leading the way right now, but still you've got I think it's in there, it sustainable. Jeff. It's kind of seeping in there, ESG. I don't know. What do you think, Amy? Yeah, we, uh, I, I don't think I can predict which is the the, the right the right way to predict. But you're right about the confusion on it, and and it is important that we just settle on a single. But because you know, when you drill down, and any one of these experts who does impact and not ESG or ESG and not impact or whatever, they're all doing the same thing. They're using different vocabulary that's all so uh, it is important that we get rid of that confusion i think it is something that people it makes people a little nervous about taking a first step the other thing 
that's important, I think, is that we not worry too much about getting perfect up front. This is an evolution. And as I just said, it started with very simple ideas, like I don't want to make money that way. Now we are into this, I do want to make money this way. And it moved people's thinking and eagerness to embrace it along with this evolution. So we want that to continue. I don't really care where somebody or some mutual fund is on that continuum, but I like to see them moving toward a final phase. Now, there is a movement afoot to define the field, not in terms of vocabulary, but in terms of what it is. And that movement would define the field as one, you pick better companies or stocks or bonds or venture capital or private equity, but you pick better ones. And the next is that you engage with your investments and and you let management know you're disappointed with this action. You let them know that you're very enthusiastic about that action on issues that impact people on the planet. And then the third is that you do you go beyond that to try to engage capital itself, whether that's through community development investing or venture capital investing, but you you attempt to bring in some non-traditional means to reaching the previously disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. I think that definition is going to go somewhere. How how far do you think we are from ESG? I'm going to call it ESG for this conversation. How far do you think we are from ESG becoming the just a, a data point that gets utilized universally across in the financial services in the asset management space, portfolio construction? Yeah, gee, I mean, main street, mainline Wall Street firms are now doing it. All the Mm -hmm. major brokerage firms have their ESG score right there on the front of their investment reports on companies now. So the biggest, the ETF fund with the biggest inflow last year was the ETF that didn't invest in oil and gas. Mm -hmm. This is, we're already beyond the 50% point in terms of companies do you offer it something or don't you in that pen? Every really at this point, a company that's in the financial asset management business and doesn't have this is, is turning away business. So they're all moving into the space now. The next phase is going to be to see if we can actually, as investors, make a difference in the world. Because I mean, that's always been my goal here. And what kind of a difference is that? Uh, the E and the S, the environmental and social, are, are the, at Domini Impact Investments, that's our mission, is universal human dignity, ecological sustainability. That's why we are investors in this methodology. That's what we see. And we're beginning to see, certainly the newspapers are full of CEOs speaking out on things like voting rights because it affects people's well-being, whether or not they can vote for their own leadership. And you're seeing them speak out on climate change initiatives and wanting to tighten the standards that government has laid out for them. So we're 
beyond the halfway point toward this. Mm-hmm. You, uh, I, I have the the cover story that I wrote on ESG right in front of me right now. It's a, it publishes Monday when this podcast publishes. And I'm going to read a quote from you, Amy, which I thought was so amazing. He said, finance is global, sophisticated. It can turn on a dime and it has good data. You can't imagine making the world better without finance. I think that's that's really telling because a lot of people would look at finance as counter to ESG. But you're saying finance is crucial to ESG, correct? Yes. And, and the way that finance is in it allowed to be crucial is that they have investors allowing it. So this is there's one more component to this. This is bringing together the grassroots globally. This is bringing together the person who puts their retirement into a mutual fund is now part of a great universal, you know, global at least financial machine mm-hmm. that is working toward this better planet, better people outcome. And I I mean, I'm so glad you're using that quote because this is very poorly understood by so many who haven't really studied the possibilities. They really think that guy, I go back to that initial, my goal is to make as much money as possible. Don't distract me. Mm-hmm. And refuse to see the people they're killing along the way or refuse to see the ecological destruction they're creating along the way, which will eventually kill people also. So that is being torn aside. They're not allowed to hide behind those blinders anymore. (laughs) And they're focusing on a win-win opportunity, which, yeah, we're we're really seeing every single day of the week. Mm Mm-hmm. When I, 30 years ago, when I would kind of construct what are the perfect companies, the most perfect companies out there, I would have to look at something like a Ben and Jerry's, an ice cream company, because there wasn't a company who had a product that made things better because of the way they made, you know, that. now you're looking at this deluge of new companies that, that come to the public with a purpose of being beneficial to the public, you know, an app harvest that, that had their spec offering within the last quarter and you know they're out there making organic vine grown vegetables and or I guess a tomatoes a fruit in a part of the country <laughs> that needs the jobs and I, you know the the whole DNA of the company is for social purpose this is terrific now we're starting to see companies created in order to serve a social purpose beyond give people jobs. You have a, another question for Amy, Bruce? Well, I just wanted to throw out just an observation. It's funny we're talking this afternoon because this morning I was on a call with some senior brokerage people from Merrill Lynch, just as kind of a background call to review the year, the first quarter, and then last year, uh, and the pandemic and how the how the advisors are operating through the pandemic and the like. And, you know, one of the first things out of the very senior people at Merrill Lynch was how, um, you know, hot they were for ESG. And they were talking about ESG that like they couldn't stop talking about it, you, you, you know, until yeah. they started getting questions from journalists, basically, about other things. And I've been on plenty of these calls, but I was just struck at the time 
struck earlier today, this morning about, whoa, these guys are really pitching ESG hard. Now, Amy is, is in, you know, is the founder and chair of Domini Impact Investments too. So I don't want her to give away any of her secrets unless she wants to, but what's the sense that you're getting from the big Wall Street firms, Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley, and what are they doing in terms of their wealth management and retail sales of these types of products, Amy? Yeah, I know. I, I'm pretty, by and large, I'm pretty impressed. There are uh, occasionally I feel kind of disappointed with, I, I see a great deal of that research and, and sometimes it seems, you know, just foolhardy, you know, they'll talk up a chemical company's one product and ignore the other 90 products or something. But the by and large, this is a terrifically positive thing. I think a little bit of the momentum that came about right now, what you started the show asking about the current momentum, may have in fact been COVID. This past year, good companies that had solutions to people's problems were sought out tremendously. So, you, you know, it was always a pain in the neck to travel five hours to visit somebody and have a face-to-face conversation. It was a lot of money and it was a lot of exhaustion and Zoom was out there, but people felt silly using a Zoom kind of a product for professional purposes. Zoom essentially made up 10 years of growth hope in six months of COVID. You know, Dexcom with their patch for reading whether or not your glucose is properly controlled made up 10 years of growth when they got the ability to have reimbursements from medical systems for that patch because within a COVID environment, nurses didn't want to go around pricking patients. So you had all of these earnings and all this possibility rapidly brought forward and it was very much in the companies that were solution-oriented, recognizing people's needs, unmet needs, and and finding a product that would solve those unmet needs. So when you had this great big burst of energy that that pushed for, I mean, there's Tesla tenfold in whatever two years time. When you had that great big surge in in performance among companies that came in with disruptive technologies that did something real, that really helped people. That also inspired the Wizards of Wall Street <laughs> to take action. That you know they are very geared toward disruptive t- technologies and and new thoughts that are going to kind of shift everything. A- and I think that was a component to the excitement this year. Right, hey, Amy. Maybe uh, as we kind of wind down here, you can give us a little bit of a like an update on the the status of the of Domini. And the uh, KLD research and analytics, and what what is the what is the status of that index now? Where can people uh, go to invest? Well, so Domini Impact Investments will have its thirtieth anniversary from the launch of its new fund, its first fund coming up this coming June. And we we have we're a small firm. We have four five core products. We have domestic stock that you know walks and talks like your core domestic equity fund, and we have a international 
product, such international product, one that is more value and one that is more stock picking. We have what we call, we have a bond fund and we have uh, our newest, second newest lineup is our sustainable solutions, which attempts to address the audience that is seeking more direct investment in these change agent companies that that I was referring to just a minute ago. And that's a multi-cap, totally opportunistic, and it's been a heck of a lot of fun to do the research for. <laughs> so, and, and we think that that is kind of covering what most investors need as a starting position. And obviously, it's easy to find, domini.com. All right. Any other, any other books in the works? Uh, no, but I did write for a magazine a bunch of editorials. We'll publish those for uh, the 30th anniversary. <laughs> but my, it's time for another generation to come along and do the book writing. <laughs> yes, relax a little bit. You've 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 made yeah. your mark there in the ESG space. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to have Amy back on, you know, at some point in time, just to talk about what it was like to be a woman on Wall Street in the in the seventies and the eighties. Yeah. Oh, well, absolutely, and what she had to deal with, you know, the the shenanigans, the the nonsense, you know, coming from the male brokers at the time. Oh, sure. I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Some of that can be sensitive, though. So, you know. Okay. Well, thank you. It's been fun. Yes. Yeah, thank, thank you for you, coming Amy. on, helping yep. us out. Good yep. stuff. Anytime. Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast, which launches, as you know, every Monday. We want to thank our special guests, uh, law professor, UNLV law professor Ben Edwards, and Amy Domini, of course, an ESG pioneer and founder and chair of Domini Impact Investments. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. You can find this podcast and all the other Investment News podcasts at investmentnews.com, of course. We're on Apple, we're on Spotify, we're on Google Play and Stitcher. Please leave a review on Apple and follow us on Spotify. If you want to spout off, pop off, Jeff Benjamin's handle on Twitter is at Benji Ryder. Mine is at PD News Guy. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be talking to you next week. <laughs>